This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Great to be with you as always. A few programming notes before we get started. There is no YouTube live stream tonight. Albert and Ryan are off, but the live YouTube stream will return next week as per usual. I also want to formally announce the launch of my brand new podcast. Very excited about this. Conspiracy Unlimited. Three new episodes drop every week, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Three new episodes every week. You can subscribe at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com, conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com, or just go to iTunes, Stitcher Radio. Again, Conspiracy Unlimited, three new episodes every week. Uh, So much going on in the world that I just can't cover everything on a weekly terrestrial radio show, and thus uh, the rationale for the, uh, the new podcast. Very excited about it. Hope you enjoy it, and you'll let me know what you think. Rosemary Ellen Guiley will be with me in the second hour to discuss the angelic hierarchy. You know, during Christmas and Hanukkah, uh, I always love talking about uh, angels, so we'll do that second hour. First up, U.S. President Donald Trump has been described by many as a populist. Uh, Bernie Sanders certainly was a populist. Uh, But Louisiana Governor Huey P. Long, uh, who served in the great state of Louisiana from 1928 to 1932, uh, called himself the Kingfish, was a firebrand populist who rivaled and possibly surpassed uh, FDR in popularity. Uh, one month after announcing his candidacy for the president, uh, he was assassinated in the Louisiana State Capitol building, incredibly popular with the people because of his Share the Wealth campaign, but he was despised by the elites and his political enemies. Don Jeffries dedicates an entire chapter to this remarkable historical figure, Huey P. Long, in his new book, Survival of the Richest. Previously, Don authored Hidden History with a foreword by Roger Stone. Don Jeffries, how are you? Fine, thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me on. 
My pleasure. Survival of the richest. How the corruption of the marketplace and the disparity of the wealth created the greatest conspiracy of all. A lot of people, maybe when they see this uh, title, they might say, oh, this is uh, this is right down Bernie Sanders' alley. But uh, not so. Uh, explain. Yeah, I, I differ from most, and I think that's why uh, a lot of leftists are, aren't drawn to this book, because they are they just kind of instinctively go for the FDR, uh, LBJ type of uh, great society programs that create huge bureaucracies, and as we've seen over the decades, do little to eradicate poverty. LBJ's war on poverty was lost as surely as Reagan's war on drugs was. So... Um, I, you know, I'm a Huey Long fan, so you know, I go with the share of the wealth thing. I want to attack, I want to go after the the root, the root. But the problem is that too much wealth, the great, the majority of the wealth is concentrated in an incredibly small number of hands. And if you're ever going to have any kind of fair society, you have to free things up, uh, as it was for most of our time. The greatest time in the economically in America's history was basically uh, when we, when uh, we had the greatest distribution, the fairest distribution of wealth, which would have been like from the 1940s through maybe the early 1970s. So uh, we need to go back to something like that. You cannot have a, a situation we have now. Recently, the most alarming statistic that came out is that 50% of Americans, half the country, <clears throat> are making less than $27,000 a year. And I, I don't know. I mean, that's nothing in today's. So that's barely... <clears throat> 27,000 you might be able to get a one bedroom apartment in some areas of the country so that you cannot have that kind of a distribution of wealth and have a first world economy it's just not possible but the answer is not to create another program or another government program that, that clearly these things don't work you have to go out to the root cause and i think Huey long gave us a blueprint for that the Kingfish. So let's talk about uh, Huey Long, this populist uh, governor of Louisiana uh, and um, a member of the United States Senate. He was really only on the political scene uh, a short while, uh, governor for four years and senator for, I think, less than three. Uh, so let's talk about Huey P. Long. Where did he come from? Well, he, he was he was obviously a Louisiana native, and he he really was like a lightning bolt. I mean, he he became uh, renowned at a very young age, and just was a brilliant guy. And uh, he, as you said, his political career was relatively short, but he was only forty-two, I believe, when he was assassinated. So who knows what would have laid ahead for him? I mean, he could have you know we have decades, and his ideas were just incredible. I mean, Huey Long was uh, <clears throat> basically. Talking about uh, Huey Long's pressure caused the only good things to come out of the FDR administration, which was uh, the National Labor Relations Act of 1938, which gave us the 40-hour work week and overtime and uh, pensions, vacation, pace pensions began to be created, uh, that kind of thing, where workers didn't enjoy that before. But Huey Long had been advocating a 30, maybe 20-hour work week and uh, four weeks off for every uh, every uh, American worker and things like that. <clears throat> so uh, his his pressure created that kind of stuff and uh if you look at what he did in, during his time in louisiana again as, as opposed to like a bureaucratic program you see the tangible results i mean huey long invented the concept of uh, adult education his his infrastructure program in louisiana basically is something that we, we were hoping maybe donald trump would emulate when he talked about building the infrastructure of the united states because we desperately need one but he built so many he built the state up from the marshland i mean he his charity hospitals his, uh, that he built all across Louisiana it resulted in the death rate uh, in Louisiana dropping by 30%. Until he came along, mental patients, people with mental problems, were just thrown in jail. He belonged to institutions for them. 
he did, you know, he did things like that that they're just for, you know, that, that we don't even think of today. And, uh, you know, at the time he was, we see something now where uh, in Europe and other places are talking about coming up with a universal uh, minimum type of income, which is, seems like a crazy idea, but I think people are recognizing that because of the distribution of wealth around the world, it may be the only answer unless you're going to throw people on the streets. And Huey Long was, uh, during his... Uh, share the wealth program one of his proposals was that uh somewhat the people be given a yearly stipend if their income was less than one-third the national average so he was he was ahead of his time on so many things but unlike what we would see today and what what you would think of him as opposed to any kind of a communist or socialist thing huey long's tax plan was going to exempt the first million dollars which would be 12 million dollars in today's dollars from taxes so, I mean, no conservative Republican would even come up with that where, you know, people making a million dollars or less pay no income taxes. That was so in, instead of having five tax brackets, he had he had two, zero and whatever above a million. Well, was. no, he still had tax brackets. Basically, his plan was the first million went tax free. And then I believe it went up five percent or something for every million after that up until um, in today's dollars, it would be 60 million after 60 million. 100%. So, I mean, today, do, do people really, I mean, would everyone be okay with a $60 million fortune? So there's, there's still room to grow, but I think those, that's only necessary because of the way, you know, it's just human greed. It's just the, the way things work, and we see it today where the people with money just want more no matter what, and what happens is none of that trickling down ever happens. So you have the, the crazy uh, <clears throat> situation we have today where, as I said, to Half the people are making $27,000 less that are working. Of course, we know all the people that are out of work, despite the, uh, the, the, the fake unemployment statistics, which only count the people that are getting benefits. And Trump himself rightly pointed out how phony those statistics were under Obama, but now that he's the president and they're lowered somehow, these are great statistics, and uh, they, they haven't changed the way they calculate it. So it, it's still phony, and the problem is still there. And you also have that same half for the country, the 50%, <clears throat> the bottom half, has less than one percent of the collective wealth. You just you just can't have a situation like that because how are, you've got half of the people that aren't able to buy your products and uh, you know go to the shop and go to enter, entertainment things. I don't understand how you can anyone can think we can have a first world country like that. But the people that are at the top are just you know <clears throat> walking around clueless because they're doing fine and that's all that counts in their world. Don Jeffrey here on The Conspiracy Show, his book, Survival of the Richest, How the Corruption of the Marketplace and the Disparity of Wealth Created the Greatest Conspiracy of All, uh, published by Skyhorse. Uh, let's go back to Huey Long's uh, rise to power. He started out as a lawyer. Um, tell me about his early career. Well, he spent, as he said, he never took a case against a poor man. And unlike, say, an Abraham Lincoln, who has this you know, reputation as an honest name, Abraham Lincoln was actually more of a corporate lawyer. He usually sided with the kinds of companies and, and, and powers that uh, Huey Long invariably went against. He went against Standard Oil. He, uh, you know, he ended up arguing a Supreme Court case at a very young age, and uh, what I think was William Howard Taft said he was the most brilliant man who ever argued a case before the uh, Supreme Court. Huey Long, from the very beginning, was, was focusing on banks, the power of banks, and the bigger the banks, the better. He was focusing on Standard Oil, which was a huge uh, concern in his state of Louisiana. He never, unlike a lot of these, uh, let's say, a Noam Chomsky type who, uh, who criticizes the military 
at our wars, rightly so, but then we find out he was, his, his first few books were financed by grants from the military establishment. So, so he, he, he was, there was nothing phony about Huey Long. He was the real deal. He did come up from nothing. He, uh, he, he was one of those guys who did it by hard work. I, I, I'd have to check, but I, I think he didn't. I'm not even sure he graduated from college. I believe he just went and passed, passed the bar exam at an incredibly young age. Just a brilliant guy. And he was, you know, his power, his, his oratory was something to behold. And you can listen to his speeches even today. And in today's society with the Internet and uh, just being able to have video access to everything, I can't imagine how many views Huey Long's speeches would be getting on YouTube or how fascinating he would be to watch on C-SPAN just talking to his colleagues. But he, he was a brilliant young guy, and he was young when he died, so he was always young. He, was, you know, he, never, he never got to hit middle age. He was 42 when the, they assassinated him. And uh, you, you mentioned Standard Oil. I think he referred to them as the Invisible Empire. Uh, did he have any? I mean, Teddy Roosevelt obviously was, you know, before him, ran uh, before him. But Teddy Roosevelt took on uh, Standard Oil. Do you think they would have been simpatico? Uh, no, I, I'm not. A, I'm not. I, I, I think he was being more sympathetic and more like uh, William Jennings Bryan. I think William Jennings Bryan was a more real populist. Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, has that reputation as a trust buster. And when Hidden History 2, hopefully, is going to be published down the road here, uh, my publisher's shown an initial interest in it. I have a lot about uh, Roosevelt and uh, these other figures in there. I think Roosevelt was uh, certainly not on the level of a Franklin Roosevelt as far as, uh, you know, it being a, kind of a typical uh, wheeling and dealing politician. But uh, he loved war a little bit too much for my taste. And, and his difference with uh, when in Huey Long would be. For instance, when Huey Long wrote, he had the audacity, again, at a very young age to write My First Days in the White House, before he ever even ran for president. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 and you know, it's a, it's a great read. I mean, it's, it's a very short thing, but in the book, he demoted FDR back to Secretary of the Navy, just to, just to take him <laughs> off even further. And his Secretary of War, this is very revealing, where obviously he would, uh, something, somebody like Teddy Roosevelt would never agree, because Teddy Roosevelt never met a war he didn't like. Although I'll be honest, Teddy, at least he did walk the walk, because he actually would have gone and fought in the war himself anyway. So he actually did, you know, put his hands on it. But again, I, I, he was too much of a warmonger for me. But uh, in his book, Huey Long named General Smedley Butler the greatest anti-war activist we've ever seen as his Secretary of War. And that shows, you know, that shows you that he, there wouldn't have been any wars in the Huey Long administration with Smedley Butler, Secretary of War. And Smedley, but- Smedley Butler, for those don't, who don't know, wrote that book, War is a Racket. Yep. Yes, we did. And, now, and also Smedley Butler issued a comment after when he, heard, when he read the book that he said, uh, have, it, have being named Huey Long Secretary of War was the greatest compliment I've ever received. Hmm. Was, was Smedley Butler somehow wrapped up in the... Uh, the supposed plot to uh, uh, launch this military coup against Roosevelt? That's, a, that's an odd story, and one I've never totally understood, because uh, Smedley Butler testified that he was approached by these right-wing forces uh, who wanted to overthrow Roosevelt. And, uh, what, you know, again, I, ask, I, ho- I hope I ask the questions that most historians don't ask, but uh, most historians just kind of sweep that under the rug because they don't want to talk about Smedley Butler at all. They want to stay away from him. But I would ask why, you know, these right-wing fascist forces would come to a, a very far left-wing anti-war guy like General Smedley Butler. Why would they come to him 
to ask him. So I, I, I find it, but I, I don't doubt that they did because I don't. I think Smedley Butler was an honest man. But I find the whole thing kind of uh, strange because again, Roosevelt, Roosevelt was playing the game they wanted, and certainly if these, why I don't know, understand why they would have wanted to overthrow Roosevelt unless it was for some domestic reasons because he was certainly uh, like his cousin Teddy Roosevelt. FDR was uh, never met a war he didn't like. And, uh, you know, I, I'll explore that in hidden history uh, quite a bit, hidden history, too, quite a bit. All right, Don. Don, let me uh, jump in here. We'll take a time out, come back and continue to delve into uh, the remarkable life and, and career of populist Louisiana governor, Senator Huey P. Long, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Don Jeffries the author of Survival of the Richest, How the Corruption of the Marketplace and the Disparity of Wealth Created the Greatest Conspiracy of All. Of course, previously, uh, Don penned a very explosive book uh, called Hidden History uh, with a, uh, a foreword by a very controversial uh, figure, uh, Roger Stone, good friend of President Trump. Uh, we're talking about Huey P. Long. Uh, now, he ran on the as a, as a Democrat. Uh, you know, it is... It's been it's come to light by uh, uh, people like Dinesh D'Souza, but earlier uh, by other authors that the the Democrats at that time particularly were really uh, connected with the uh, the KKK. The KKK was kind of the military wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, how did how did Huey P. Long, being the populist that he was, uh, handle the KKK? Well, he, again, he was unlike any other Democrat, Southern Democrat, especially at this time. He he was he strongly opposed the KKK, and the, and the KKK strongly opposed him. Now, I, I imagine again because Huey Long didn't play any identity identity politics, and that's again what differentiates him from any so-called liberal today. Huey Long didn't really. I mean, he, his few comments that he issued about race is that any man, you know. Any any uh, person, regardless of their color, should be given the same opportunity. And those kind of things that we can all can agree to. He didn't pit black against white. That's why even today, the older uh, poor people that are still alive there, whether they're black or white, they have pictures of Huey Long in their in their houses. They they, they loved him because he, unlike any other politician of his age or our age, he uh, he ignored those kind of distinctions of. Uh, race and religion and, and, and so, or, you know, gender or whatever. I'm sure he would, he would be ignoring the transgender stuff and things like that today. He concentrated on the big issue, which was the class distinction. It wasn't right that the, the wealthy had so much of the money so that people had to live in, you know, in devastating conditions. Some people had to, and that's what he concentrated on. And it's hard for any, and I think that's why you see the kind of debate we have today because we get lost up in this identity politics. And I, I'm convinced that very few people would vote for modern-day Republicans, but they do because they're so upset at the ridiculous social justice warrior type of things that the Democrats run on, and they just get so irate at that. They just want to see them lose, even though they know they're not going to benefit from the 
Republican tax proposals. I mean, I've I've told my blue collar friends over and over again, you know, back going back to the days of Reagan, you know, your your ta- your taxes aren't being cut, but they somehow <laughs> they somehow I don't know how they get swept up in this stuff. I said, you know, you realize you're not making enough money. Uh, you're not having enough taxes taken out to begin with to have, have them cut, but they just still want to believe that, and we see that in, in, in the new tax proposal where it's really the, working class, the poor and working class are, are not going to benefit at all. But Huey Long, you know, he lets you know who is going to benefit, and, and uh, certainly almost everybody would have been happy under his proposal. I mean, this guy, you know, he, again, he's talking about race relations. He abolished the poll tax in Louisiana. I think he was the first to, uh, governor to do that. And he... Uh, in addition to all the other great stuff he did, he instituted policies that that they've calculated would have saved the uh, t- in, in today's dollars, saved the average family over five thousand dollars annually. These are significant savings, and you can look at any of these, uh, um, you know, New Deal, Great Society type of programs, and you, no one can sit there and say, "Well, I saved five thousand dollars because of some." <laughs> Some uh, you know anti-poverty program LBJ came up with not going to happen, but Huey Long he did that. He 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 came up with a debt moratorium, which is the closest thing we've had to a year of jubilee, which is what I think we really need is a year of jubilee. Yes, yes. And he came up the closest thing is debt moratorium, basically stopped all foreclosures in a state. Eighty percent of the people under his proposal, eighty percent of the people stopped paying any personal property tax at all. Because again, he recognized who was capable of paying it and who wasn't. Because his the problem then, as now, that we never discuss is the problem is most people are not being paid enough. It's not it, that's the question where fairness comes in because people aren't paying. And that's why survival of the richest really looks at all that. Why why does you know why do certain occupations pay what they do as opposed to other occupations? And we kind of examine that. Is you know is really the the vice president in charge of looking out the window? Is he really worth thousands of times, uh, you know, more money than the, the janitor who's cleaning the building for him? And if if one of the, if both of them were gone for a month, whose presence would you notice? <laughs> I don't think anybody would know the vice president was gone, but you'd certainly know the janitor was gone. So I think we just looked at it and have you know we, everything, no matter what kind of work you do, I think it has some value and. You should be paid at least enough. Uh, one of the things Bernie Sanders said that I agree with is that any full-time worker, it's uh, disgraceful for any full-time worker to be living in poverty, and that, that's true. But if you look at half the people making $27,000 or less, <laughs> you're looking at a whole lot of people that are uh, living lives that are way below what they should be living in a, in a nation as, as wealthy as ours. One of the things I think that uh, the current president could could have learned from or could learn from Huey P. Long is the way that once once he um, became governor, he consolidated his power. I mean, he uh, and this is one of the things that Trump has been criticized for by his supporters. You know, everyone talks about how he's being opposed by the 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 permanent bureaucracy and he's the, the deep state. But Huey P. Long went in there and, and uh, he cleared house in, in an awful hurry, didn't he? I mean, he just started firing cab- cabinet people and, and hundreds and right. hundreds of people. Yeah, and, and there, there, there are some similarities in their rhetoric. I mean, Trump's, I mean, Trump's certainly no share of the wealth guy, but if you look at some of Huey Long's streets, the way he made up you know, names for uh, FDR and his people, he, 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 he would constantly troll them and, and prod them the way Trump does. But Trump's 
rhetoric is, but but then Huey Long backed it up with with, with real. Like I said, you know, he saved the average family five thousand dollars. He he built the entire state up while Trump talked about the infrastructure. He's done absolutely nothing. Huey Long did it. He walked the walk. Trump talks a good talk, and, and again, it's, these are about other things. But Trump did talk about infrastructure and ending the wars and so forth. But the reality is different than that. And, and Huey Long, as you can see, his his uh, his fantasy. Uh, administration, presidential administration, included Smedley Butler, Secretary of War. I don't see anybody outside the swamp in Donald Trump's administration at all. He just keeps naming one insider after another, and then he kind of goes back to his Twitter, and he's like, I call him the, the, the tweeter-in-chief, because that's really the only thing he appears to do. He just kind of talks as if he's an outsider, like he can't do anything. We, you know, There's the swamp doing it again. Well, why do you keep naming people that are in the swamp to every position around you. If you want to drain it, you have to start by getting rid of these people and putting some real outsiders in power. But he hasn't done that. Huey Long did that, and, and plus Huey Long obviously was, was totally sincere. His entire career showed that he was uh, sincere in what he believed in, and he was devoted to that share of the wealth cause. Right? I, don't, I don't think Donald Trump has showed that he's uh, very sincere about anything. Huey P. Long was certainly, uh, well... Uh, authoritarian, I, I think, is an, an appropriate term. Uh, he he would show up unexpectedly, unexpectedly uh, at on you know uh, congressional uh, or or state senate hearings and and you know corral political opponents and grab people by the collar and sort of bully them into voting certain ways. Uh, and also, I read where every state employee had to pay a portion of their salary directly into his sort of political war chest. Well, that, you're talking about the deduct box. That's, that's, and, and again, I, you know, with, with anything, Richard, that, that's, that's written or said about Huey Long, I take it with a grain of salt, because this was the greatest enemy that the establishment, the swamp, had in the 20th century. This, this was a guy who threatened every, their very existence. So anything written about him I, like that, and it, it, if, he was, if he had this corruption at all, if he had a so-called deduct box, it was, you know, really small change compared to the corruption that we see in all these guys. I mean, Huey Long's body count, you know, didn't exist. Unlike, you know, in history, I talk about all these politicians have a body count behind them as they, as they rise to power. Uh, Huey Long himself was killed, you know, <laughs> part of FDR's body count. After basically predicting, you can go back and read the congressional record now, and you can still see all the speeches Huey Long delivered up until a month before he was assassinated, where he predicted he was going to be assassinated and alleged that there were high, highly powerful people in Washington, D.C. that were plotting his assassination, and that he gets assassinated. So I, I think that, that what happened to Huey Long kind of belies any fact that he was corrupt, because the, the people that, that uh, end up getting assassinated almost invariably are threats, whether the Kennedys or, or whoever, threats to the, uh, to the establishment where... Uh, you know, the Henry Kissinger types are still alive and doing well and living into their 90s. Mm -hmm. uh, before the assassination, there was um, an attempt to impeach uh, Huey P. Long, not too far into his his uh, his term. I think it was the first year. Uh, yep. Tell me about that. Yeah, and, and you, I mean, he has a great speech where he said they tried, you know, they tried to impeach me in 1930 and then the 1930, whatever. He, he goes over it in his typical comedic style, and uh, we see that it's not surprising. I think this was probably the less violent method that his opponents choose to try to, uh, to try to eliminate, to take him away from power. And uh, we, we've, we've seen that throughout history 
you know, Judge Jim Garrison, you know, certainly was, was uh, they did the same thing to him when he was trying to, uh, you know, investigate the JFK assassination. And even today with a guy like Trump, who like I said, I, I have tons of problems with, but basically his opponents are just kind of stamping their feet up and down and just saying, you know, we have to just go away or we have to, I mean, they're, they're trying to cook up, they have no possible grounds to impeach him because he really hasn't done much of anything. So I don't know. But, I mean, I think they want to impeach him because on the basis of that uh, tape where he made his ridiculous locker room uh, comment uh, that, you know, tons of, uh, you know, obnoxious males make every day, you know, to one another. And I, it, that just doesn't rise to an impeachable offense. But this is, you know, the problem when, when someone, even even Trump, as ridiculous as he is, I think he's a loose cannon and he still scares uh, some people in the establishment that he might do something good. So in Huey Long's case, they knew he was the real deal. And what he was talking about was revolutionary and would have uh, really <laughs> affected every powerful person in the country. So, uh, sure, they chose impeachment at first, and that didn't work. And eventually, uh, you know, as, as he predicted, he was assassinated. The the impeachment, I mean, how much did that have to do with you know, it making enemies with Standard Oil, and he, and he wanting to uh, he wanted to to tax Standard Oil. Standard Oil, it seems, from a lot of indications, they seem to own the media, the New Orleans Times, Picayune, uh, the editorial staff, a lot of advertising dollars from Standard Oil. Was was it about the tax on oil? Well, I, I think that had a lot to do with it, and certainly uh, at the time, one of the, the probably the most powerful journalists in Louisiana was Hotting Carter who uh, was the father of Hotting Carter uh, III, who uh, was Jimmy Carter's press secretary. And if you watch Ken Burns' documentary on uh, Huey Long, which is, uh, it's one-sided. It's not, it's not, it's certainly not, uh, it's biased against Huey Long, but it's the least biased thing out there because it's basically just people talking. But one of the people that talks quite a bit is Hotting Carter's widow, and she freely admits, uh, you know, we, we, were, we talked every Saturday night about who was going to assassinate him, when they were going to do it, and and uh, we were happy when he was assassinated. She still admitted that. But the the press at the time gave him it, – it was very similar to you know what we see with Trump. The press was so against Huey Long, and the state was divided much as America is divided now into people that hate Trump and the people that still like him. And uh, that's the way Louisiana was. Louisiana, I think – it was probably a little less divided because I think the people he had more he had obviously had more support uh, than Trump does now. But the the press and the and the, uh, the the Standard Oil type controlled uh, organizations were totally against Huey Long, and so I think I think it's no when when people talk about anything with Huey Long, the D duck box and his bullying people and all this stuff, I just take it all with a grain of salt because I understand how despised he was by powerful forces. So. It was in their interest. They're they're not going to ever depict him as this uh, nice, humble guy who just was concerned with helping the poor. All right, uh, Don, stay put. We'll uh, take a quick time out, come back, and continue to delve into the kingfish, Huey P. Long, the great populist. I'm back with more right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Don Jeffries is with us author of uh, Hidden History, of course. We're uh, 
wild with anticipation over the uh, the future release of Hidden History 2. In the meantime, we have Survival of the Richest, how the corruption of the marketplace and the disparity of wealth created the greatest conspiracy of all with a forward by, whoa, look at that, yours truly, Richard Serrett. Um, we're talking about Huey P. Long and um, how he survived uh, impeachment. Um, I don't know. Again, these may, these reports from the from his critics, how you'll react, but um, it sounds like he had a bit of a a vindictive streak after he survived uh, that impeachment. He reportedly set about to fire even uh, relatives from uh, from from state jobs of, uh, of those who opposed him, and and uh, really set about to, to to clean house. Was he? Did he have a bit of a, a vengeful streak in him, Don? Well, again, he may have, but again, anything about his personality, it's hard to tell because most, most, you know, his history is written by the victors. As I, I, I stress that constantly in Indian history too. When we look at history, you have to understand who, who won whatever it was, <laughs> whatever war, whatever political struggle. And in this case, Huey Long definitely lost. So, and he, he's he's not going to be represented as 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 any kind of a uh, an admirable figure. That's just not the way it goes. Whereas uh, the, the figures that the the establishment historians want to promote, whether it's the Roosevelts or uh, Woodrow Wilson, Abraham Lincoln, whatever. Even today, we see F, a, a despicable guy in our lifetimes, most of our lifetimes, Lyndon Johnson, who was you know, there's not a you can't find a good personal anecdote about him anywhere from the people that work with him. <laughs> but recently, Carl, recently Rob Reiner makes a film where he tries again. They're trying to resurrect LBJ as like a better figure than JFK, who, again, JFK, you can't find a personal anecdote about him from people that knew him and the way he treated people that isn't positive. I mean, he was a nice guy to everyone, but it doesn't matter. LBJ was was a typical politician of his time who was willing to do anything and step on anybody to get his, to get power, and uh, JFK was fighting for peace and uh, going against every powerful force in the country at that time, almost like Huey Long in a different way. But So with Huey Long... It's it's really hard to tell where his person, but I, I certainly wouldn't, you know, I, I wouldn't have blamed him even if he wanted to get rid of all the uh, his opponents. And I think that's the the problem was is uh, what Trump isn't doing. You know, Huey Long was trying to drain the swamp of his day, and in his case, Louisiana was a literal swamp. <laughs> he had to drain and then and then uh, pave. He basically paved the state and, and and built up the infrastructure there, but. He had tons of political opponents, so uh, you know he, he he had very colorful language, and he certainly exaggerated things. So, I mean, one of his great speeches, uh, he he began with saying, you know, I I have a half a mind to lead the mob and hang the the other damn ninety some how many senators were at the time, hang the rest of you. I and mean, that's certainly, I don't think that was literal, but it was his colorful rhetoric, and it's what it's what made him so attractive to people, especially people that were struggling, because they looked at, you know, in the, in the days of the Great Depression, he was a, a fighter and a champion for him. I believe the share of the wealth societies had 10 or 12 million uh, members nationwide, and they were growing. So this this is the, you know, I think we have to keep in mind anything written about Huey Long, whether it's that or, you know, Robert Penn Warren's uh, All the King's Men, which, you know, not surprisingly won a Pulitzer Prize. I mean, these kind of awards are ten, generally given out to uh, establishment-approved themes, and the theme of that, obviously, is that what you're talking about is Huey Long was this demagogue who really didn't care about people and was power-hungry and a bully and and uh, had this deduct box where he was just, you know, corrupt at the basis level, and I just, I think his record, uh, and, and even if he was, even if he was personally corrupt, there's no denying what he did to impact the people's lives, unlike a, a 
totally personally corrupt guy like Lyndon Johnson, who did nothing but lose the war on poverty and create more poverty with, with all his uh, his bottomless uh, bureaucratic programs that uh, all, all they did was just create more government workers. All right. We, um, we're coming up on another break here. Um, when we come back, Don, I want to get into uh, very quickly why uh, he decided to run for the Senate after only – I don't even think he – fully completed his his uh, term as governor then jumped into the uh, the senate and of course ultimately his uh, untimely demise that's all coming up with don jeffries author of survival of the richest how the corruption of the marketplace and the disparity of wealth created the greatest conspiracy of all you're listening to the conspiracy show my name is richard Serrett. don't go away corporations governments and sometimes entire civilizations What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio. We're back with Don Jeffries talking about Huey P. Long. Why did he, he, he leave uh, the office as governor and, and jump into the Senate race so quickly? You know, that's, that's a curious question. I think maybe at the time he didn't realize, uh, I, I believe it was an effort on his part to go national, more of a national figure, uh, becoming a senator, instead of just more concentrating on his, because he had he'd pretty much done most of what he had to accomplish in Louisiana. As I said, I quit the statistics I quoted earlier. He had, you know, repaved the state, built up the infrastructure, and done all these great things that helped uh, everyone, except, again, the very wealthy. I think he maybe looked at it as, a, as a, a more logical springboard for a presidential run, but as we know, there's really Barack Obama was uh, the first sitting senator since uh, Kennedy that was elected to the presidency. So usually going to the Senate isn't, isn't a ticket to the White House. But uh, in, in uh, Long's case, there may not have been that much history to uh, reflect upon. And he, uh, he probably thought, I believe, he, he, the only reason, rational reason I can think of is because he thought it would make him more of a national figure. And because uh, he, he, he definitely wanted to go to the White House. Uh, initially, as you say, he supported the New Deal, uh, but he had a falling out with, with FDR. What happened? Well, he, well he, as he said early on, he... Uh, he started, and much as many of us looked at who Trump put in his administration, he looked at it and he said, when you see people like uh, Bernard Baruch and James Warburg, whose who's, uh, brother uh, Paul Warburg had been, you know, president and helped plan the ridiculous Federal Reserve System, um, he knew, he, you know, he basically said, you know, what are all these bankers doing there? And uh, FDR just basically wanted to, sh- to shut him up and to get him to go away. But uh, he was, FDR had lots of critics on the left, especially initially. But uh, Long was probably the loudest, and uh, he—I I don't know that he ever necessarily liked Roosevelt because Long, like most genuous, uh, genuine uh, leftists at the time, uh, was uh, strongly opposed to World War One. Whereas uh, FDR, safely ensconced, uh, you know, as his position as Assistant Secretary of the Navy, uh, was uh, strongly uh, in favor of it, as was uh, Teddy Roosevelt. So I think he. He already was kind of suspicious of him because of that kind of thing. And, uh, but when he saw, you know, all these bankers uh, surrounding him and these insiders, much as we see today with Trump, he, he, he realized what was going on. And then Roosevelt was slow to act, and he certainly wasn't uh, 
doing the kind of things Huey Long wanted, because Huey Long, again, wanted, hey, you've got to do something about the concentration of wealth. You've got to get the money down to these people. You've got one quarter of the people, uh, you know, out of work. They're waiting in bread lines and so forth, soup lines. Uh, he didn't see uh, Roosevelt doing that, and uh, the, the more uh, he protested against him, I think the Roosevelt, Roosevelt ended up considering him one of the two most dangerous men in the country, along with Douglas MacArthur. That was a well-known quote of his, and uh, a lot of us think Roosevelt himself you know, it may very well have been the architect behind the assassination of Long because he's that's who he directly threatened. Long, Long was going to run for president in 1936, probably as an independent, and at the very least, he would have taken enough votes away from Roosevelt to ensure that the Republican would win. No fan of the uh, the Federal Reserve either. Uh, not surprisingly, did he did he make uh, a lot of speeches in opposition of the Federal Reserve on the House of the Senate floor? I don't know how many speeches he made, but he was one of the earliest critics. He was one of the first ones to realize that uh, it was a disastrous act. And uh, again, I think because the Federal Reserve Act was passed in 1913, so you know, Huey Long first came to prominence less than 20 years later. So again, there probably wasn't that much history to draw upon, but he definitely was on the record as, as being opposed to it. And again, it was it went with all of his. And he, Huey Long had a distrust of bankers, so naturally he. Just as he saw who was in the Roosevelt administration, he saw all the people lining up behind the Federal Reserve Act, and he realized, you know, this is, you know, if these people are supporting it, it can't be good. But Huey Long, he, in my mind, he was on the right side of virtually everything. I mean, I, from what I've studied of him, uh, as, as far as you know, what I would consider, uh, what I would support, and that's that's all we can look at, I guess, is you know, how would we act if we were in that position? What would we support? And Huey Long seemed to be. You know, come down on what I consider the right and fair side on just about every issue. President Trump is really, you know, love him or hate him, he has really mastered uh, the use of social media, uh, both in his campaign and now as president, sort of going over the head of uh, of the, uh, the the politicians directly to the uh, to the voters. With Huey P. Long, he was really a pioneer in mastering the use of radio, and his he went on these tours with his uh, nationwide tours with these radio addresses. They were drawing huge numbers, something like twenty-five million radio listeners. Talk to me about yeah. about his 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 use of uh, radio. Oh yeah, I, mean, I believe he began every broadcast with, "Ladies and gentlemen, this is Huey P. Long tonight uh, speaking to you." Uh, and in a further effort to get rid of all the grafters and corruption or something like that, but words to that effect. But, uh, yeah, he was – and, again, you can only imagine what kind of an audience he would have today because he was so media savvy. Unlike Trump, who Trump, you know, kind of appears awkward and he's certainly not articulate, Huey Long was incredibly articulate, was very funny, and, and, and like Trump, could come up with – you know, when he – he would just castigate the Democrats, although he was a Democrat and a nominal Democrat – he, t- he called them Tweedledum and Tweedledee and High Papa Loam and Low Papa Hyam. And he talked about how there wasn't a dime's worth of difference uh, between them. And he was, he was really the first one to point that out, too. As far as I know, I, I never uh, have heard of any politician before him making those kind of speeches where he just contrasted both his own party and, and the other party and just basically said they're identical on all the most important issues. And uh, no one even does that today. I mean, Trump kind of did when he was running, but again, he's a lot less articulate, and he can come up with a funny phrase here or there, but it's not, not to the level of, I, I don't think they're memorable phrases, unlike Huey Long. I mean, people, people don't forget high Papa Loam and low Papa Loam. 
And uh, he was receiving, I think, something like 60,000 letters a week in support, more than the president. So you can start to see how Roosevelt would perceive Huey P. Long as a real threat. Oh, yeah. I think he was personally jealous of him, too, because Huey Long was much more popular than Roosevelt. He received more fan mail than any senator had in history and, and, and ever has in history. And all more fan mail than all the other senators come on. And people back in those days when our government was more open still, when people could walk off the street and just go, if there were room, they could go sit in the, in the rafters there and watch the Senate uh, sessions. People would do that. And they were coming for one purpose, and that's all. You know, he was a rock star. He was like the Beatles, you know, being, being in Congress. And uh, I have no doubt that he would, in, in 1936, if he had run for president, I think he would have been elected. Because especially if they had had any kind of... Uh, Debates, which they might not have had, but his his rhetoric would have been so much better than because Roosevelt had nothing to run upon. He had done nothing to cure the ills of the country. They were still mired in the Great Depression, and then the uh, I guess it was Wendell Wilkie in 1936, whoever it was, was just a, you know a typical banker stooge who was just a lukewarm version of Roosevelt, and, and you know high Papa Long to low Papa Hyam. He didn't disagree on any significant issue. So Huey Long would have been such a contrast there, and certainly every poor person would have voted for him. And I, think they recognize that, and I, I believe that's why he was assassinated. Well, he, he did announce he was running for president in 1935, and it was only a month later uh, that he was assassinated uh, in the state capitol. Who was his, uh, his gu- who was this gunman, his um, assassin, Carl Weiss? Well, he, he was ale- he, the alleged gunman, Carl Weiss, was the son, a young doctor, of one of uh, Long's many countless uh, political opponents in New Orleans, but his family still. His son is still alive, I believe, and he, he still fights for Weiss's. I don't believe for a second Weiss did it. We know that it, uh, in 2005, a former uh, Louisiana police superintendent, Francis Grevenberg, signed a sworn affidavit that said at the time that Carl Weiss was framed for the murder by planting a gun at the scene. And they know that. They never, they never produced a bullet that killed along. Like in so many of these cases, there was no autopsy before him, no x-rays. Uh, from what we know about uh, uh, the operation that was there, they talked about that it was, a, it was like a circus in there. And you know, some of his opponents were in there that were involved that had no reason to see him live. And later on they said, you know, his injuries were nothing. He shouldn't have died from it. So he basically died from awful medical treatment, and you have to keep in mind that you know, half the state loathed him. And as in the case of Hotting Carter's uh, widow and I.F. Stone, the leftist journalist who also believed, uh, also uh, hated the Warren Commission critics and constantly said Oswald did it, but this leftist darling, he, he was in on Ken Burns' documentary too, and he, he said, you know, I, I hate to say it, but he, I was happy when he was killed. So. They hate the left hated Huey Long as much or more than the right did. I, I put in the book. I put the quotes from the National, uh, the, the uh, American Communist Party and the American Socialist Party. They both loathed Huey Long. They didn't. When he died, they celebrated, and that makes no sense if he, you know, considering they call him a communist or a socialist himself. And, and theoretically, that should be especially what socialism is about. But. That clearly shows the distinction between uh, populism and socialism or communism. Socialism or communism produces the, the kind of uh, stuff, obviously, we saw in the Soviet Union and countries like that. And to a lesser degree, what we saw you know, in programs like LBJ's Great Society or things that Obama might want to, to have done, whereas Huey Long's populism produced real tangible results. And I think that's why he was assassinated and those other figures uh, had nothing to worry about from assassins. Getting back to, to Weiss, I mean, wasn't this... 
um, wasn't this perform this assassination done at close range? Didn't Weiss like shoot him like from four feet away or something? And then the, then uh, Long's bodyguards returned fire and, and killed Weiss. But what what other possible alter, uh, uh, ex- explanation could there be if it wasn't Weiss firing that gun? Well, again, we we have to you know we have to obviously trust Long's bodyguards because Weiss was shot like seventy times or something ridiculous. I mean, they just blew him away. They made certain he he wasn't alive to tell any tales. And uh, again, he was he, he could have had insiders on it. I think most people believe, and there are also there are theories out there that say Long's bodyguards accidentally shot him. And uh, I I would have to think it was probably an insider or two in his part, which certainly could have been possible. Uh, that shot him, and then they had how they had Weiss lured to the scene. I, I'm not sure. You know, I, obviously, I, I don't know how the the intricacies of the conspiracy, but we do know. Except we had that police superintendent that later, before he died, admitted that yeah, we planted a gun at the scene. So what are you planning a gun at the scene for? If the guy did it, so I mean that that tells you right there that. I mean, that's an insider. He has nothing to gain from that. He didn't, you know, he didn't get a big book contract or he had no financial incentive to say that. He was going against the establishment. So we know that uh, that the official case is dubious at best there. And, 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 and when you take into consideration the person who was assassinated and how controversial he was, I mean, to me, that alone... It proves that it was no lone nut because we know that who who, who had the most to gain from... Uh, from Huey Long's death, and at that time, that would have been really the entire establishment of his state and, and the country, and certainly uh, FDR and the uh, the Democratic establishment, especially of of the day. Uh, did Did Huey Long have have uh, children, and and did they become active in political life? He did. I mean, I, he had children. Of course, one of his sons, uh, Russell Long, was a longtime senator, but uh, and you know he's the one that supposedly uh, you know was was the one who alerted Jim Garrison, who's played by Walter Matthau and Oliver Stone's JFK. Uh, you know, who first got uh, Jim Garrison interested in the JFK case. But he was a longtime senator, but he wasn't a share of the wealth guy, and 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 not not until I, I've become fortunate to to strike up a, a friendship uh, with his great granddaughter. Who is who runs the Huey Long website, and uh, is you know, a lot of the statistics I got came from that website, and she's very devoted to her um, to her uh, great grandfather's legacy. And as far as I know, she's the only one in the family who's doing that. And uh, I sent her the book and everything, and she seemed to appreciate it. And I've, I've told her about all the interviews I've done about Huey Long. And as far as I know, I I'm the only one out there that's that's not buying the official story of Huey Long himself, let alone his assassination, which is that he was a demagogue, he was had this deduct box, he was corrupt. Because I look at his his career and I said this guy was revolutionary. You know, it's no wonder they assassinated him. He said they were going to, and I just I don't buy their their negative stories about him because I I think he was a great man and. Um, she, I think she appreciates that. But as far as I know, she, she's the only person in his family that, that really has followed his legacy. Don, final question. Uh, we've got less than a minute here. Is it possible for another Huey P. Long type, another populist in his mold, to come up through the ranks and, and become president? Well, you would hope so. I think the, the message would be very receptive. And I think we saw, as I put, as I remarked in the Survival of the Richest, we saw elements of that in both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. And I think that's why they both were so popular. They were they were uh, striking, you know, messages, uh, parts of, of the populist message, different parts, 
But when they talked about trade and they talked about putting America first, building infrastructure and stuff, that's stuff that strikes home with people that are struggling, of you know not uh, giving you know not having jobs here and all that kind of stuff. That strikes you know you're not going to get anywhere with average people by talking about we live in a global world and we have to go intervene in whatever country. Populism says, hey, look, we have problems here. Let's let's point out the obvious elephants in the room. So I think certainly a, a populist candidate could know whether, but you can only imagine how much the media would attack a real candidate like uh, Huey Long. Absolutely. Don, thank you so much for this again. Survival of the Richest available at Amazon. Yes, oh yes, Amazon. Barnes, it should be in all Barnes & Noble stores. It's a, you Google it, you can find it just about anywhere. Survival of the Richest. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Richard. All right. Rosemary Ellen Guiley next. We'll talk angels right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. And a big howdy to all of those listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, right here in Toronto, AM 740, 96.7 FM. Hi to all of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations across North America. The podcast, of course, available Everywhere, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn.com, and uh, TalkZone.com. Those of you who listen through the Zoomer Radio app and the Conspiracy Show app, those of you who watch the Conspiracy Show on the live YouTube stream, and please take a moment and hit the uh, the red sub button. I need your help to get to 10,000 subscribers as quickly as we can. But incidentally, uh, just a reminder, there is no live YouTube stream tonight. We will resume with the live YouTube stream next week. However, and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. And again, I want to remind you that my brand new podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited, launched earlier this week. Three new podcasts every week, and I upload those every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can look for it on iTunes and Stitcher Radio, or you can go to Conspiracy Unlimited podcast.com conspiracy unlimited podcast.com there are all sorts of uh, widgets uh, there to help you subscribe on your iphone and your android or rrs or rss feed and uh again conspiracy unlimited new episodes monday wednesday and friday all right christmas fast approaching you know people always ask are you ready for christmas and the answer is always the same no but it doesn't matter right it comes whether we're ready or not but i do love christmas and one of my favorite things around this time of year is to get rosemary ellen guiley on the program and talk about angels i always have associated christmas with angels of course angels were present at the birth of Jesus Christ. It was an angel who announced to the shepherds in the field in Bethlehem that the king was to be born that night, the light of the world, the the prince of peace. And a few years ago, I think it was 2015 actually, Rosemary put together a wonderful book on the subject titled Calling Upon Angels, How Angels Help Us in Everyday Life. Rosemary is a regular contributor to The Conspiracy Show. She's the author or co-author of 
I think it's over 70 books now covering the paranormal, spiritual matters, all things metaphysical, many of them major encyclopedic works. And her website is visionaryliving.com. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, welcome once again to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing well, Richard, and season's greetings to you. Likewise, likewise. A very Merry Christmas. So let's talk angels, because in that book, as I recall, like right out of the shoot, you offer up a, an amazing example of how angels can intercede on our behalf, help us in our daily lives. This was a case out of, uh, I believe, New Jersey, not too far from where you are, an electrician who, by all accounts, should have just been you know, dead as a doornail, were it not for, according to him anyway, uh, the uh, the intercession of an angel. Tell us about that story. Uh, it really is an astonishing story, and many like it, where people feel they have literally been rescued from the brink of death by an angelic force or some mysterious, mysterious spiritual force. And uh, Robert uh, was an electrician, and um, he was working in a mill, and managed to grab a hold of a 440-volt wire that he didn't realize was live. And that's enough to kill a person. And, of course, when you, when you are uh, in contact with uh, that high voltage, if you're, if you're touching it, you can't let go. Um, and the electricity literally fries you on the inside. Uh, and he had this thought crossing through his head um, that he didn't want to die. Uh, as, you know, he's feeling this force. And suddenly, it seemed that somebody or something from behind ripped him away from the wire. Now, uh, in a case like this, anyone who would touch him would then be affected by the electricity as well. So that's what make the, makes these situations so dangerous. Right, right. How do you get someone in the crucial second, how do you get someone off the wire? And so he feels a pair of hands grab him around the waist and pull him off. So, of course, at first he thinks that miraculously one of his co-workers did it, but nobody touched him. And uh, so it, his conclusion was that he had been saved by an angel. It literally felt like a pair of hands that had uh, rescued him from a, uh, a fatal experience. I think his co-workers and, offered up a, a, a more prosaic explanation. They thought maybe he, his brand new shoes, I guess he had uh, shoes with rubber soles on them or something, uh, that perhaps they had uh, prevented him from being electrocuted because they insulated him. That's right. And, of course, um, there's always an, a search for a natural explanation. Um, you know, people are kind of dumbfounded by these events, and the first thing they think of is, well, you know, how do we explain this? And uh, still, um, rubber-soled shoes didn't quite explain it. Now, he was treated for third-degree burns. He even lost um, uh, one of his little fingers uh, for gangrene. And uh, he developed psoriasis. Uh, and interestingly... Uh, where the psoriasis patches appeared uh, around his waist, it was like the imprints of hands. Wow. And that, for him, that reinforced uh, that he had had some sort of divine intervention. Uh, so uh, I've, I've collected so many stories like this over the years, Richard, where people have, uh, they've 
been in near car accidents. They've felt steering wheels uh, yanked out of their hands like uh, invisible hands come down and start steering for them to, to save them from a terrible accident. Uh, people have been saved from drowning, from falling, uh, and they literally feel a physical force, like something physical has picked them up uh, or pulled them off uh, at, uh, at the last possible second. And we attribute these interventions to angels. I've always been um, curious as to where angels uh, come from. I, I, you know, in the Christian tradition, they are, they are created, along with humans, by God, separate from humans. They're not human. Um, but where do they reside? I mean, are they, are they earthbound? Are they, do they descend from the clouds? Uh, is there an, an angelic realm which is sort of equivalent to a, one of the hyper dimensions? Where do they reside? Well, of course, in ancient times, they literally were up in the sky because that's where heaven was. And so um, there would be, um, you know, images of angels coming down from the sky and that sort of thing. Uh, in modern terms, we can describe them as being um, residents of uh, other dimensional, uh, other dimensional realms, non-physical realms. Uh, one explanation would be the astral plane. Um, angels have no body, but they can appear as though they have bodies. And they exist in these uh, realms very close to Earth. Well, that sort of fits in with uh, one of the models of quantum physics that holds that there are parallel worlds um, stacked up on top of each other um, next to Earth, and um, maybe even up to 11 of them, and uh, that these parallel worlds would have uh, versions of ourself in it, maybe other beings. There might be doorways between these realms. So um, the abode of angels certainly has um, altered in time as our understanding of, of the cosmos has changed. But they are otherworldly, and yet they have access to Earth. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, my guest here on The Conspiracy Show, uh, the author of, uh, oh, just too many books to list, Ouija Gone Wild, uh, The Art of Black Mirror uh, Scrying, The Gin Connection, Haunted by Things You Love, um, the, 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 the most recent one, which combined traveling and the paranormal, The Road to Strange. Uh, right now, of course, we are talking angels, calling upon uh, angels. Now, I I learned something from your book that I didn't realize. I learned a lot of things from your, your your books, but one thing I was totally unaware of was that the idea of angels, even within the church, sort of fell out of favor. It was almost, as you point out, they were embarrassed to talk about angels. When did that happen, and then when did it change? Well, angels have risen and fallen in, in cycles over history um, as, as the Church has considered them important or not. And um, probably the first big um, um, demotion of angels happened in the Reformation, uh, where the Protestants split off from the Catholics. And uh, in that split, um, the emphasis of, on angels was uh, diminished in favor of uh, a tougher line, a harder line, that um, brought more of the, you know, the demonic and the satanic influence in, that uh, these were the horrors that would await you if you sinned. Um, and um, 
during uh, Victorian times, uh, angels enjoyed a bit of a renaissance, uh, but it was in connection with death. There was so much death and mourning on a daily basis in Victorian times, and angels were guardians of the soul. They were um, the shepherds who took us to the afterlife, and so angels were uh, quite popular in that regard as a funerary um, monuments, uh, decorating, um, uh, you know, death notices and, and things like that. Uh, angels were considered to be very stern uh, in Victorian times and um, were not um, cheerful, pleasant beings uh, that, you know, they might come to warn you about your wicked ways rather than um, be um, uh, more cheerful and, and happy and uh, helpful as as we consider them today. Well, on into the 20th century, uh, in modern times, angels had another falling out in popularity, and uh, I th- I think it was just the you know our switch into a more uh, scientific. Uh, technology-driven world. Uh, things like angels became more fantastic, uh, something that w- was associated with, um, oh, the old days back in the Bible. Um, they don't really exist. They're just sort of devices to help explain stories. And um, in the um, uh, around the mid-20th century, um, there were theologians uh, who were even uh, reluctant to talk a lot about angels, and people didn't come forward with their experiences because uh, they were afraid of ridicule, much like uh, UFO contactees are afraid of ridicule today. Now, this is interesting because, um, on on the other hand, in the mid-20th century, we we have a a pope, in fact, we have two popes, one in the early 20th century and one in mid-20th century, who advocated... Um, believing in angels and cultivating a relationship with your guardian angel. Uh, And those were uh, Pope Pius XI and XII. And uh, uh, yet in the popular media, uh, angels were considered devices. They were fantasy devices. But that changed around the 1990s. And I think this was kind of an outflow of what started in the 60s with an interest in spiritual things and meditation, metaphysics, um, probing the meaning of life, um, led to, in the 90s, uh, a a renaissance of angel literature, angel experiences, um, and, um, you know, more people coming forward about their stories and uh, believing in angels. I think we need to believe in angels, Richard, because they are, uh, from the beginning, uh, they are and were intended to be intercessors uh, to the divine, uh, to be able to help humanity. And uh, when people feel powerless, when they feel disenfranchised, when they lose their way, we do need uh, uh, some sort of... um, a spiritual resetting of our compass, and angels are one of the perfect uh, intercessors to help us do that. 100%, and we need them now uh, more than ever. I believe in angels. I also believe in fallen angels. I believe in demons. I believe in an unseen world. But we're talking angels tonight as we approach Christmas. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, my guest visionaryliving.com the website and check out this book check it out on her uh, her online store 
what a wonderful Christmas present this would be, Calling Upon Angels. Be right back. More of my conversation with Rosemary right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com, the website. And tonight we're talking angels, calling upon angels. Uh, share with us another story of uh, an angel interceding in, in uh, someone's life, Rosemary. Well, one of the stories that struck me the most that I put in calling upon angels, it was another rescue story. And uh, it was about um, a woman who was in the hospital with a respiratory uh, condition. And she would have these uh, kind of seizures or episodes where she couldn't get her breath. And uh, to the point where, where uh, she was in danger of passing out. And so she would have to, uh, you know, summon help. And uh, so she has one of these attacks. And... Um, a nurse comes in, kind of storms in, all businesslike, and uh, tells her how to get her breath back by uh, clamping her hand over her um, her nose or her mouth and um, giving her instructions on how to regain her breathing. And she's very stern about it and barks these commands out. And then as, as soon as the patient has recovered, the nurse uh, kind of storms back out. And uh, the woman was very grateful for her help because uh, she thought, wow, this is such, why didn't someone tell me this technique before? I, I wouldn't be struggling so much. So she wants to find out who this nurse is to thank her, and nobody knows who the nurse is. Um, there's no nurse by that description, um, no nurse uh, on the floor that, that um, matched uh, the description that the woman gave. And so she came to the conclusion that she had been helped by an angel as well. And in angel literature, this is a phenomenon. Uh, It has a name, and it's called the mysterious stranger. And uh, the circumstances are that somebody finds themselves in an emergency situation of any kind. Uh, And suddenly, a person, male or female, appears on the scene very quickly, knows just what to do to rectify Uh, the situation, doesn't say a whole lot, just what is needed, disappears abruptly, and then no one can ever find them again uh, if they they try and and trace them down. So um, another dramatic, and if if we have time for another story, um, another another one like that, 2013, there there was a young woman, um, I think she was about 19 years old, she was in a very bad car accident, and she was pinned, she was injured and pinned in her car, this happened in Missouri, and uh, the, uh, the police blocked off the highway two miles away from the accident, and rescue workers were trying to extricate her from the wreckage, and her vital signs were failing. Uh, so it was getting rather dire, and she 
actually was afraid that she was going to die as well. And she asked some uh, if there was someone who could uh, pray with her. And um, a voice in the crowd says, I will. And suddenly, out of nowhere, there's this priest. And he's an older man. He has silver hair. And um, no one had noticed him before. Uh, he steps forward and he starts to pray uh, with the young woman. And not only that, he starts giving instructions to the rescue workers how they can get her out of the wreckage. And while he's doing that, equipment arrives. Um, I think it's a device called the Jaws of Death or something like that. Jaws where of Life, it, right. The Jaws, Jaws of, of Life. life. Yes. Thank you. Yes, that, uh, you know, the, it, it gets people out of, of crush. Uh, wreckage situations and so she was uh, rescued and nobody had seen this priest many photographs taken of this scene no priest whatsoever in any of these photographs so uh, speculation uh, it goes viral all over the world you know an angel saved this woman well uh, about a, a week or two later a real priest came forward and said that uh, he was responsible for it but he had no explanation for how he got past the two-mile perimeter cordon of the police. He said he'd been driving by, saw the accident, and went to see if he could help. Well, the road was blocked off two miles away. And no one saw him parking his car, walking across the field. No police officer stopped him. Uh, no photograph shows him. So personally, I think the church for whatever reason, wanted a natural explanation for this, and it puzzles me why I think she was rescued by an angel I agree who manifested in the form of a priest. Fabulous, fabulous story, Rosemary. Uh, the, the hierarchy of angels, um, I, you'll have to help me out with this, because I, re, I remember, of course, the, the seraphim and the cherubim and, the, and the, uh, then the archangels, uh, but then there's there's something I don't know like nine different orders. Help me fill in the blanks. Uh, we do we start with the archangels at the top? They're at the very top, are they not? Well, uh, no, actually they're the second from the lowest. Oh, so shows you how much I know. All right, so who is who's at <laughs> well, the top? The seraphim. <laughs> Uh, the seraphim are at the top, right. yes, and um, there there are actually a number of hierarchies of angels, and the one we know the best is uh, a nine-level hierarchy, and it is credited to uh, a man um, known as a pseudo-Dionysius, and pseudo not because he was a false figure, but he's often confused with the biblical figure, who was also called Dionysus. But uh, he lived in either the 5th or 6th century in Syria, and, and he was steeped in Platonic philosophy, and he created this, uh, this hierarchy. And the idea is that uh, the heavens mirror the earth, and the earth mirrors the heavens. So as things are organized on one level, they, they are uh, on the other. And so if earth is organized, then heaven must be organized as well. So the seraphim are at the top. And... Um, their, their name actually means uh, uh, carriers of warmth, uh, fire makers. Uh, sometimes they're even called fiery serpents because of, of the nature of their energy. Um, but they are so close to God that hum, human consciousness um, is said not to be able to comprehend them at all. And their purpose is to hold um, uh, the energy of creation and uh, literally the energy of God. And um, 
um, the idea of the hierarchy is the energy of each level sort of trickles down to the next level and trickles down, trickles down until we get down to the lowest, which is angels, um, which um, sort of retranslates all this energy in a way that human beings at this dense physical level can absorb and understand. So the seraphim supposedly have very little to do directly with human beings because uh, they are concerned with um, holding uh, the field of creation. Are they the and ones with? Are they the ones with all the the uh, the different eyes on their wings? Um, both the cherubim and the seraphim are described that way. Ah, okay. And um, one one of the things that I found when I was researching angels, um, and it got kind of maddening because there was such an overlap in descriptions. There would be overlaps in um, the descriptions of the angels themselves. Um, angels uh, would have uh, different names but the same duties. And uh, when you get into the ranks of, of fallen angels, there would be angels who seemed to be both, like they were two-sided, you know. Um, and uh, it's, it gets to be a lot to sort through. But yes, the seraphim, um, the many eyes uh, represent sort of the all-seeing eyes of God. They see in all directions, and they see everything in creation. Um, the cherubim underneath them um, are keepers of knowledge. And uh, these are the beings who uh, are, are said to have guarded the gates of Eden with flaming swords uh, to keep um, outsiders out. And when Adam and Eve fell from grace, uh, it was uh, a carob that drove them out of Eden. And um, so on a human level, uh, the carabim represent um, knowledge of God and also the power to know and see God. So uh, when we do a lot of spiritual searching, we might be coming into contact with some trickle-down cherubim uh, energy. Trickle-down cherubim, I love it. <laughs> Sounds a little bit like trickle-down economics. Well, uh, actually, there have been cases on record of individuals who feel that they have been in contact with cherubim. Um, I think uh, Teresa, um, uh, Teresa of Avila... Uh, had some angelic experiences, and she described one of them as uh, a cherub, and um, he had a bow and arrow and uh, sent the arrow into her heart, which um, instigated a mystical experience uh, where she was swept up into the fiery rapture of God. Uh, but she described it as a cherub, a, a cherub angel. Hmm. What's after so, the, after the uh, cherubim? Uh, the we have then the thrones and the thrones are literally the chariots of God. They're they're like the vehicle God rides around in, so to speak. Ah, all right. Uh, Interesting. You know, God gets around the heavens. You know, He rides on the thrones, and uh, so they also have many eyes, and uh, they're often described as wheels. Um, Ezekiel's vision of of the um, uh, four mysterious creatures in a chariot with omnidirectional wheels. Um, is uh, often interpreted as throne energy. Interesting. Um, so it, is it possible then, the, the modern-day UFO phenomenon, those that aren't, you know, highly sophisticated U.S. aircraft, they could be thrones? The thrones have been compared to UFOs because of, of the circular shape and the wheels and 
the um, the fact that they access the the cosmic realms. Um, yes, many comparisons, and in, and in fact, um, uh, even angels have been compared to extraterrestrials and extraterrestrial visitors. We have modern experiences today where people um, encounter beings, and uh, if they don't have any orientation to ufology whatsoever, but they know about angels and maybe even have some spiritual beliefs or religious beliefs in them, uh, they might interpret uh, these visitors as angels rather than ETs. And that was the case with Betty uh, Lucas, um, who um, then remarried and became Betty Luca uh, Andreasen. Mm, Um, When she had her first encounters, uh, she thought they were angels. It depends upon how the beings present themselves. You know, if they seem to be otherworldly and glowing and um, they walk through walls, um, not all of these otherworldly visitors are little greys with big black bug eyes. <laughs> um, so there's um, there's quite a bit of blurring and overlap there. Uh, and um, um, we may uh, actually uh, be um, incorporating the biblical angel into our modern ufology interesting as well interesting i mean my when i think of 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 angels based on the on the in the bible uh you know i'm thinking of these tall incredibly beautiful um um uh, creatures and and we hear again in the abduction phenomenon we hear people talk about the tall whites we hear people talk about the nordics so they may be describing angels. It's quite possible. And uh, in fact, a, a lot of um, uh, people in recent surveys uh, have described their contact experiences as being, as being with energy beings, um, that they have um, not a corporeal-looking form, but something that's more diaphanous, which sounds like an angel but yet um, could be uh, something of an interdimensional or extraterrestrial nature. All right, Rosemary, stay put. We'll uh, take a time out, come back. A short segment awaits. We'll uh, maybe work down the the ladder of the hierarchy of angels. We'll talk about archangels, guardian angels, and we'll hear some more fabulous stories from Rosemary's collection of angels. angelic intercessions calling upon angels rosemary ellen guiley right here on the conspiracy show don't go away you want the truth you can handle the truth the conspiracy show with richard serrett from zoomer radio you're listening to an exclusive podcast of the conspiracy show with richard serrett heard every sunday night from 11 p.m to 1 a.m on zoomer radio the new am 740 Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Calling Upon Angels is uh, the book. Rosemary Ellen Guiley joins us once a month uh, to discuss all things paranormal, metaphysical, and as we approach Christmas, what better time to talk about angels. So we talked about the seraphim, the, the cherubim, uh, then we talked about thrones, and uh, so what's next on the uh, in, in the hierarchy after thrones? Well, then we get into the middle tier of angels, and the hierarchy of nine levels is broken into three tiers. So, you know, we've talked about the three highest uh, tiers that um, would have very little direct contact with humans. Now, in the middle sphere, 
we get into angels uh, that embody a lot of characteristics that human beings would relate to more on a daily basis. For example, the dominions, uh, which would come, they're also called the dominations. Um, they regulate uh, duties, and chiefly the duties of angels, but um, they're also associated with the quality of mercy. Uh, they're kind of governmental in nature, so they're organizers, uh, and they, uh, they keep the clocks of, of the cosmos running. And below them come the powers. Um, now, they also have alternate names as well. Authorities would be um, a very well-known alternate name. And um, they have a lot to do with the battle between good and evil. Um, they also govern uh, the powers of nations on Earth. Uh, they're about the right use of power. Uh, and... Um, they often uh, serve as uh, as spirit guides. Um, they are sometimes said to guide the deceased to the other other side. Um, so we could look upon the powers as models of uh, how to use your power well for right or wrong. So would they uh, attempt to interfere or manage geopolitical events, for example, maybe? one of these powers, one of the hierarchy of angels, would they try to influence a, a Vladimir Putin or a Kim, uh, uh, um, the um, rocket man, as Trump calls him, from North Korea? Would they try and influence them to do the right thing? Well, it's not the role of angels to meddle. Um, and so they are said to be, and I do believe this, uh, they are uh, limited in their ability to influence the affairs of human beings. When they are petitioned and called upon, then they can exert an influence. So, um, yes, they could. Uh, uh, they could influence uh, someone. Their role, of course, would be to influence for harmony and for good, to keep uh, to keep the dark side, to keep chaos, evil, destruction, those those forces uh, at bay. Uh, but as we know, we have plenty of that on the planet. And mm -hmm. uh, I think that there are dark forces that are invoked as well. So it's it's a constant um, balancing act uh, uh, between the two sides, and uh, the powers would be uh, very involved in that. All right. What's below and then the, the powers? Um, the powers, right? And then the um, the last ones there uh, in the middle range are the virtues. And uh, these are angels that are associated with miracles, with healing, um, with um, like kind of inner qualities that we need to, uh, to overcome obstacles, courage, strength. Um, and um, uh, fortitude, um, we can appeal to the virtues to help us bring out all of those qualities. So the middle level... Um, is more accessible to us. Most of the time, people are dealing with angels and archangels, but uh, I do believe that we have access to these other realms uh, where the angels are uh, literally models of, um, of the high road for human beings, and we can call upon them to help us embody those same characteristics, strengths, and attributes within us.
So that's those are the first two spheres in the hierarchy. So then we come to the final sphere, and where do we have uh, what do we have here? Well, we have the principalities, and um, they also look after earthly affairs, uh, cities, nations, even religions, um, and uh, like the um, uh, dominion or not the dominions, like the powers, they have a sort of uh, governing. Uh, abilities. And um, I would say they are a more accessible level of the right use of power. Now, the lower two um, levels, and we think of angels as exalted beings, mighty exalted beings, and we're actually dealing with the lower two levels most of the time, the archangels and the angels. Why don't we we take a quick time out when we come back? We'll get to the archangels, uh, because as you say, those are the the ones that we have the most dealings with. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, the author of Calling Upon Angels, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down, and it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley here on The Conspiracy Show, her website, visionaryliving.com. Again, the book, Calling Upon Angels. Now, we're uh, in that third sphere in the hierarchy of angels, and these are the ones you say that we that we humans have the most dealings with. And uh, so, where have we arrived at the archangels yet, or is there still one above? Um, no, we're at the archangels. The All principalities right. are the ones right above the archangels. And um, um, the most familiar archangels are uh, Michael, Gabriel, and, and uh, Raphael. Right. And uh, uh, nobody knows exactly how many archangels there are. Uh, they are, uh, again, interfaces to God, uh, but not on the level of, of the uh, much higher realms. Um, sometimes they're described as seven, that there are seven archangels who stand in the presence of God, have the ability to literally be in the presence. Um, numbers differ depending upon the theologian. These are all very visionary kinds of models and descriptions um, over the centuries. The ones that we know the best uh, come from uh, the from the Bible, uh, and also from books outside the Bible. But the Bible actually only names uh, two, and that's Michael and Gabriel. And uh, Raphael is named in the Catholic canon in the Book of Tobit, which is not in the Protestant Bible. Um, And uh, so all the other names of angels and archangels come from books outside the Bible. And the archangels... um, again, embody sort of higher-level qualities. For example, um, Michael is about the fight against good and evil, but he's a street fighter. Um, <laughs> and, you he's know, he's scrappy. Got the sword. <laughs> he's got the sword and the shield. 
um, he's he's the force you call on when you're really in the thick of it, you know, uh, dealing with any kind of adversity, any kind of problem. And um, he also, in, in lore, weigh, weighs the souls of the dead uh, and um, is a valiant um, kind of epitome uh, of the fighter against evil. When you say uh, he is, weighs the souls of the dead... Does that mean, I mean, what does that mean in terms of judgment? It sounds like we're all going to line up and get our meeting, a one, some FaceTime with Michael then. <laughs> yeah, well, personally, I don't think there is any, you know, weighing of the souls myself, but he's often presented that way in lore and also in art. In fact, in art, he's often shown holding a scale and with the, the sinners uh, weighing down the scale and the good souls uh, weighing up. So it's part of the the... Uh, sorting the wheat from the sha- uh, chaff uh, in the afterlife, uh, you know, part of the final judgment. Uh, he is uh, one of the most important angels said to escort uh, souls to the afterlife. He is often associated with the angel of death. Um, and Gabriel is the angel who comes to Mary to announce uh, the birth of Jesus. Right. And so Gabriel represents purity, uh, awakenings, um, beginnings, uh, the herald of something new uh, coming in. Uh, Raphael is associated with healing, and in the book of Tobit, um, he teaches a young man by the name of Tobias how to um, exercise demons uh, by using the smoke gall of fish, and uh, also which is a healing process because uh, Tobias does that to a heal an affliction of a young woman whose um, husbands are murdered on their wedding mm. night by this demon. Oh, dear. Um, and so Raphael is associated with healing, and he's often shown with a fish. Um, so there are other archangels as well, but, but they, um, again, we look to archangels to see a bigger picture um, concerning ourselves and our relationship to God. Uh, the angels are our personal level. That's where we find the guardian angels, angels who come and help us with paths or to get through uh, rough patches in life. I think um, angels come and go in our lives as we go through changes and challenges. Um, I do believe in guardian angels, that we have um, at least one, maybe more, um, of these uh, spiritual beings who are with us from birth to death, and maybe even from lifetime to lifetime. Guardian angels are uh, fascinating to me. It's not something I learned about in church. I don't know if guardian angels are are uh, even part of Christian doctrine. Are they? Do you know? Well, um, there uh, there were these two popes um, in Pope Pius XI and twelfth who had a lot to say about guardian angels. In fact, in 1950, Pope Pius XII issued uh, an encyclical where uh-huh. Uh, he told people to believe in their guardian angels uh, because um, the guardian angels will help you if you believe in them. And the more you believe in them, the more they will help you. But they have to be asked. Uh, and um, then we have another Catholic order, the um, uh, Angelorum Sanctorum, uh, which fosters belief in angels uh, and encourages people to to form relationships with them. But, um, uh, you know, it just may vary a lot today. Uh, I mean, just look at the dark side. We have um, 
many priests, for example, who don't deal with the dark side, uh, don't don't even want to get involved in it, and and others that will. And that seems to be the case with, with angels, the emphasis on angels today. A lot of people um, think that guardian angels are, are relatives that have passed on, but th- that can't be right. I mean, it, uh, angels are an entirely different creation, right? Though, our guardian angels are not dead relatives, right? Well, technically, no. But I think that uh, our ancestral dead can become like angels. And I get stories like this all the time where people lose uh, a loved one, um, you know, a parent. It's usually a parent, an aunt, uncle, a grandparent. And they feel that that person remains close to them in a guiding sort of way. So it's like they take on a mantle like a guardian angel, but they don't become angels themselves. I really do believe that angels are entirely separate from human beings. Uh, And... Um, that we do not become angels once we pass to the other side. You've had some angelic experiences in your own life. Tell me about one. Well, I had some remarkable ones in the uh, 1980s. I was, uh, and uh, the presence is still with me in in different ways, but uh, I was doing a lot of intense spiritual study, I was meditating, taking classes and courses, reading, writing. And I think that when you focus your intention so intently that way, uh, you're bound to have some sort of breakthrough of experience. And uh, I started having these lucid dream encounters with a being that was an angel to me. I called her Silver Lady because uh, she appeared in flowing, uh, what appeared to be like flowing silvery uh, garments, and um, she was a benevolent figure and a teacher, and I received a lot of instruction from her. I was taken places, otherworldly places, uh, telepathic communication, and it all fit in with the study that I was doing. Uh, and um, she had no face. Um, I only saw her face once, and it was just a swirl of kind of iridescent color, a very kind of opalescent color, a little bit lighter than Mother of Pearl. Hmm. Uh, Sounds like a light um, being, like a light being. Like a light being. And my interpretation, and this is an example of how we subjectively interpret our experiences, the only framework that I could fit her in was Angel. Uh, I didn't consider her to be an extraterrestrial. She didn't have quite those categories. Uh, Spirit being... um, it, to me, it didn't fit. The only thing that fit was angel. And I had these experiences for uh, quite a while. I couldn't make them happen. Uh, they were always pleasant. Um, but they ended in a very interesting episode that was very physical for me. And uh, I woke up um, in the middle of the night, literally in the middle of the night, and Silver Lady was standing almost like an apparition would stand, Uh, beside the bed. She was beside the bed, however, um, not at the foot of the bed. And um, this energy was streaming out of her fingers. Um, She had a human form, and she was bent over me. And this energy was coming out of her hands into me. It was, it was a, today we call it a download. And uh, back in the 80s, that, that term hadn't caught on for this kind of infusion 
in um, Eastern mysticism, it's called Shaktipat, when it, uh, you get a transmission of energy from a, a human teacher uh, to a student. But uh, I felt like I was just being downloaded by this tremendous energy, bits of information, and um, I couldn't quite grasp it all. I was like filling up like a gas tank, <laughs> and I, I couldn't, I had no control over it. I wasn't afraid, but I, I this thought, occurred to me like how can I accommodate all this because I was filling up and then it stopped as suddenly as it started and she vanished and I had no more of those lucid teaching dreams. I would love, I uh, imagine a lot of listeners would love to be able to find out who their guardian angels are and even communicate with them. I only have about 60 seconds. Give us some tips on how we can find out who our guardian angels are and then how, how we can reach out to them. The best way is through prayer and meditation. Many people will find the names of their angels simply by entering a prayerful state or a meditative state and asking for their guardian angel to make um, make themselves known. Um, and whatever name arises first uh, within you is the name. Uh, it doesn't have to be a biblical name. It could be um, uh, even something more common today. But that's the best way to make the connection. And then if you you ask for their intercession, for their help, you, you, you pray as well. And I mean, how, how likely is it that, that, you, that you'll get to see your guardian angel? Uh, I think um, uh, most people do not see their angels, but they feel their angels. They might feel a palpable, tangible presence around them, even like someone putting their hands on their shoulders. Uh, angels uh, will often give signs. Um, feathers are a very common manifestation, coins. Um, if you pay attention to synchronicities, uh, I think the angelic realm communicates in that way quite often. They will appear in dreams. Uh, and I've had a number of uh, visual experiences with angels, and they're pillars of light that are very, uh, they're so bright you can't look directly at them, and they probably step their energy down uh, quite a bit, uh, even for that. Rosemary, Merry Christmas to you and Joe. All the uh, the best of the new year as well, and thank you so much for spending some time with us. Well, thank you, Richard, and I'll talk to you in the new year. Indeed. Happy New Year. Thank you. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com. Back next week with a brand new program. Our live YouTube stream will be back as well. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, and coming home. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.